0: For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's open our study of God's word this morning with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we have your word to guide and direct us, that we know that it is infallible and inerrant, and that it is totally sufficient for everything that we face in life. Father, now as we study your word under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we pray that we would be responsive to what we learn, and that we would be obedient to the challenge of your word in our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and we continue our study of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said last time, I am trying not merely to cover what John says, but to try to give you a full sense of what took place during these last uh, two days of Christ before he died on the cross. We have spent quite a bit of time studying the trials of our Lord, the six trials in John chapter 18 and the first part of chapter 19, and then we came to the crucifixion. And we have looked at the aspect of crucifixion. We have studied the physical torture that the Lord went through. Then we stopped and we looked at the doctrine of the physical sufferings of Christ, that they played an important and significant role in the crucifixion of Christ and in the overall plan of salvation. However, I also made a distinction between the judicial penalty of sin, which was uh, related to the uh, spiritual death of Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God in the garden. We saw that spiritual death was the judicial penalty of sin, in Genesis 2.17, and that physical death, physical all physical suffering, the curse on the physical universe was all the consequence of sin. In fact, physical death is not announced until the end of the curse section in Genesis 3.14 and following, when God announces that from dust they came, and to dust they will return. So Jesus' physical suffering is important because it demonstrated his victory over the physical consequences of sin in all categories. And it also demonstrated for us that on the basis of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, which was the basis of our Lord's strength and what sustained him on the cross in the midst of all of that incredible suffering, that there would be no category of suffering, no category of torment or torture or physical trauma or any other problem in this life that we could not surmount on the basis of the same spiritual power that sustained our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Then last time, we looked at the uh, abuse that our Lord took on the cross. And this morning, instead of looking at what the people said to him, we are going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. I want to organize the, or bring together, harmonize the various gospel accounts and so we will start with Luke 23:35 and the people stood by looking on. And then Mark tells us that those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, "Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in 3 days, save yourself and come down from the cross." Now, prior to this, Jesus utters his first statement on the cross. As soon as they put him up on the cross, he says a prayer. Luke 23, 33, and 34 says it this way. When they came to the place called the skull, that is Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. And we saw that this is... Uh, emphasized in in, uh, the Hebrew interpretation that whenever there were three things, that which had more significance was in the middle. So this is a fulfillment of Old Testament type. There they crucified him, the criminals one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, as I thought about this this week, I asked a question. Why is it that, the initial statement that comes out of Jesus' lips on the cross is a prayer. Not only is it a prayer, it is a prayer for forgiveness. The question that many people think of at this time is that, well, Jesus is just being very benevolent. And despite the fact that they are uh, abusing him and they, have, they are crucifying him, he is offering salvation to everyone. In fact, everyone is going to be saved. And some people say this means that there is universal salvation. That is not what is going on in this particular passage. It's much more profound than that. First thing we see here that I want you to notice is Jesus' condition. Remember, he, is, he has been beaten. He has been flogged to within an, literally an inch of his life. The standard Roman flogging would strip away all the skin of the back. It would expose the major arteries and even the internal organs. In many cases, the victim would die prior to ever reaching the cross. Then Jesus had to carry the uh, cross piece of the cross to Golgotha, to the place of execution, but he could not make it. So they uh, drafted Simon of Cyrene to come in and carry it for him. They got to the uh, place of execution, and there they would lay the one to be executed down. They laid Jesus down. They put his arms out, and they drove a large metal nail through his wrist so that it would hang upon the base of the uh, palm here, and that would mean that he could stay on the cross. If you drove it through that palm, then it would rip loose. So he's undergoing all of this agony. When it would when the nail would go through the palm, that would hit the nerve that goes through there, the carpal tunnel nerve, the carpal nerve there, and that would bring about incredible agony. So in the midst of this, Jesus is going through profound physical suffering, the likes of which you and I will probably never even come close to. And yet, in the midst of our suffering... What usually happens? If I were to walk back there and pick up a two-by-four and walk you upside the head, first thing you'd be thinking about is, oh, how I hurt. You'd be grabbing your pain and you would be focused on how much you hurt. That's what typically happens in situations in life. We're hurt. We're hurt emotionally. We go through loss. We go through grief. We lose a job, whatever it is. First reaction, we focus on me, my pain, my hurt. That's because our Basic orientation in the sin nature is arrogance, and the first arrogant skill, as we have studied, is self-absorption. This is our natural response. We're immediately absorbed with our own problems, our own difficulties, our own heartache, and we don't think about other people. Now, two seconds later, if we have some spiritual maturity, we might confess our sin, get back in fellowship, and start responding in a correct manner. But initially, we tend to focus on our hurt, our pain, and we become incredibly self-absorbed. But... Jesus is not that way. He's in the midst of this incredible agony, and the first thing out of his mouth is a prayer for those who are causing his physical suffering. So the principle is that when we become absorbed with our problems, rather than occupied with grace and with our Lord Jesus Christ, we have already succumbed to arrogance and self-absorption. In such a state, we cannot fulfill the royal law of love, which is to love others as Christ has loved us. We are unable to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we're unable to love our enemies. But because Jesus Christ was sinless, because he was impeccable, because he was completely and totally occupied with the plan of God for his life, because he was grace-oriented, he was able, in the midst of incredible personal attack, assault, insult, personal pain, and misery to not focus at all on what he was going through, but to focus exclusively on the plan of God and the spiritual need of those who were causing his agony and his suffering. So he demonstrates for us a prime example of what it means to have impersonal love for all mankind. He is not giving in to any mental attitude sins of anger or despair, resentment, vindictiveness, bitterness, or frustration. He does not lash out at them. He is totally occupied with God, and therefore he is able to put their needs, their interests in what is best for them first above his own personal situation. That's what impersonal love for all mankind it is. It is not merely a passive attitude that is the absence of mental attitude sin. See, Jesus doesn't just hang there on the cross avoiding mental attitude sin. He is praying for what is best for his enemies, which is to God the Father to forgive them. Now, the second part of that brings in the aspect of the, the question, why is he praying for God to forgive them? Is this a prayer for their salvation? Or is there something more going on here? And I think there is. You see, we have to understand what the dynamic of the particular situation. Here you have the creature who is getting ready to crucify the Creator. Here we have fallen man who has aligned himself completely against Jesus Christ, who is the eternal second person of the Trinity. It is a personal assault and attack. On the creator of the universe. Now God in his justice would be totally fair. And totally within his prerogative. To at that moment cause lightning to come out of heaven. And absolutely wipe out every inhabitant of Judea. And leave one person standing. The Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus is praying. This prayer here is directed towards the fulfillment of the plan of God. It is now time to judge me. For the sins of the world. Let's go on with the plan. Let's not interrupt it with a judgment on mankind. It is time to go through with it. Just as Jesus had prayed the night before for himself Father, not my will, but thine be done. This is a prayer to God the Father to continue with the plan of salvation so that the sins of mankind could be paid for. So he prays to God the Father. I want you to notice that because what we will see. Is that in about the third saying on the cross, he will not address God the Father as Father. He will address him as, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is because in that period of time, he will be paying the penalty for our sins as our spiritual substitute, and the focus there is on his humanity. And then, before it is all over with, before he finally dies physically, he says what? Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. Once again, he returns to calling God the Father, God the Father. And that intimacy of relationship is restored. So that emphasizes for us that something dramatic and something so profound takes place between 12 noon and 3 p.m. that we cannot fathom it. How can the eternal second person of the Trinity, who is eternally one with the Father, Jesus said, I And the Father are one. How can he be separated from the Father? And that is the result, as we will see, of judicial imputation. So Jesus Christ begins by focusing through a prayer everyone's attention on the import of what is taking place. This is the provision of the foundation for the forgiveness of the sins of mankind. And he is praying that God will continue to work out and carry out that plan. Now, we have seen that at this point, the physical abuse continues. Luke 23:35. we're told that the first group that abused him physically was the people. They stood by looking on and passing by, and they hurled abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Go on, save yourself, and come down from the cross." And we saw that there is a second group there, not just the people, but also the religious leaders. Matthew 27:41 and 42 states, In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him. That's they're blaspheming him, blasphemeo in the Greek, and saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. And I studied, went through this last week and showed that, that see, they recognized that Jesus delivered others. They knew that He restored the sight to the blind, and He healed the lepers, and He cast out demons, and that they, they were honest with all of the empirical data, and they accepted it as valid, yet they still rejected His claim to be Messiah. And I encourage you that at times when you are witnessing to people, there will be moments when they are challenging your faith. How can we know that's true? How do you know Jesus even lived? How do you know He died on the cross? How do you know He was who He claimed to be? And we are tempted to think, gosh, if I, if I just had the right evidence or had, had, was smarter and had the right argument and could somehow just say the right thing, that that would just, just make it so clear to that person that they would they would immediately accept Christ. And I pointed out that that's a fallacy that slips into our thinking from human viewpoint because it implies that the basic problem is, is, is reason. The basic problem is a lack of evidence. And somehow if I could just say it rationally enough logically enough present the best rational logical argument or present the right evidence that it will convince them Jesus presented all the evidence and the Pharisees saw it and they, they rejected it because it's an issue of volition it is a spiritual issue it's not a mental issue it's not an issue of thinking it's not an issue of, of empirical data that, that all of the evidence in the world presented by the perfect second person of the Trinity who was in the presence of the Pharisees the Sadducees and all the religious leaders presented a perfect case for who he was and the gospel and yet it was still rejected so if the perfect second person of the Trinity presented a case that was rejected by negative volition we can certainly expect that there will be many times when we will present a case for salvation and it will be rejected as well it's not a rejection of us it is a rejection of the truth because of the Negative volition of the uh, individual. So we saw from this that, that they, the religious leaders as well keep saying, Jesus, if you're, really, if you're really who you say you are, demonstrate it. They're, they're, they're putting out a false scale of values for truth. They've already rejected who he is, and they're just using this to mock him. And then a third group was the soldiers. Uh, or the religious leaders would go on to say, Mark 15:32a, "Let this Christ, the King of Israel, of course they said that with sarcasm, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe." In other words, do one more thing. It was always one more thing. For the person who is negative, there's never enough evidence. For the person who is positive, uh, there is more than sufficient evidence. Matthew 27:43 was another taunt. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And then we saw that the third group of mockers at the cross were the soldiers. Luke 23:36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour, sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You see, throughout all of these groups, it's the same kind of reasoning. You know, a rebellious man sets up an autonomous, independent criterion for truth, and then he demands that God meets his criterion for truth. See, that's arrogance. Man says, God's evidence is not enough. It has to be, meet my distorted value system. And it's just a way of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1, 18 through 20. So the soldiers came up mocking him, offering him sour wine, which was mixed with myrrh, which was used as sort of an anesthetic to help deaden the pain. But Jesus refused that because that he wanted to have full consciousness so that he could focus on the task between 12 noon and 3 p.m. of identifying with all of the sins of human history. He had to think of every individual in human history, and he had to think of every single sin committed in human history during that time that it was poured out upon him. And then in Matthew 27:44, 44, we're told that the fourth group were the robbers, the thieves who were uh, crucified alongside of him. The robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. So at the beginning, both of the thieves are ridiculing Jesus and insulting him. And then something takes place in the midst of this. One of the thieves begins to focus on Jesus and say, wait a minute. He's not responding like everybody else. Maybe there is something different here. And this introduces the second saying of Christ on the cross, Luke twenty three thirty nine. And one of the criminals who were who were hanging there Now, I've told you before, when if I go five minutes and I'm clicking away on this computer and you don't see something on the screen, somebody has to tell me something. I've gone through ten slides. I work hours on these things. Literally. And, you know, if you don't see something up there and you see me moving around, you know my mannerisms. You've got to say something. You know, Al's not here. He usually says something. You know, this is a, quite a waste when this happens. It really angers me. Luke 23:39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Verse 40, but the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So all of a sudden an argument breaks out around Jesus. He's in the middle, and first of all, both of the thieves are attacking him. And then uh, one of them stops, and he's thinking a little bit. and, And now they're all being crucified. There's a lot of pain and torture going on here in the background. And so one turns to the other and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly are condemned for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And with that he says, this man has not committed any sin. He is righteous. The Greek word dikaios is used there and indicates that he recognizes at this point that Jesus is perfect righteousness. He has done nothing wrong at all. And then he turns to Jesus, and this is his expression of positive volition. He he obviously understands what Jesus has taught. He has heard the message before, and now he turns to Jesus and he says, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And it is at this instant that the thief on the cross... Is saved. He becomes a believer. At this point, he doesn't do any good works. He doesn't have time. It's just going to be a few minutes before he's dead. He doesn't uh, go out and validate his faith in any way, like the Lordship Salvation crowd always says that that work that faith without faith. While it what is there saying, while it is faith without works that saves, the faith that saves is never without works. Yet there were no works from the thief on the cross. This shows that their whole system is fallacious. He just turns to Jesus and expresses simple faith alone. See, you don't have to come up with repentance. You don't have to bargain with God and say, Lord, I'll clean up my life if you'll just save me. You don't have to join a church. It's simply an expression of faith in Christ. Now, when he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom, that's not his expression of faith. He's already done that because to, to make this statement, he would have already had to trust Christ and accept who he was and that he was who he claimed to be. So he says, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, and then Jesus responds to him, validating his expression of faith, he says, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, this gives us a very interesting insight into what happens to our Lord after he dies physically. Because he announces to this thief that together they would be in a place called paradise. Now, we know that when Jesus died physically, the immaterial part, his human soul and human spirit, were separated from his physical body. His physical body went into the grave. But his immaterial part, went to paradise. Specifically, his soul went to paradise. Now, what is paradise? Well, we know from Luke chapter 16, 19 through 25, that until Jesus Christ died on the cross, that Old Testament believers did not go directly to heaven. They went to a place called Abraham's bosom, also called paradise. This was like a holding place until salvation was actually secured. See, up to this point, salvation is provisional. The penalty for sin has not been paid for because, as the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bull, the bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But it was provisional because it was anticipating. All of those sacrifices, all the faith in the Old Testament was anticipating the payment of sin by Jesus Christ on the cross. So because of that, they went to a place called paradise where they had sort of an interim body. Now, the reason we know that is in the story in Luke 16, 19 through 25, and it's not a parable because a parable doesn't give proper names to people. You have the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was a beggar who begged outside the home of this very wealthy individual who ignored him, uh, uh that he, the Lazarus was, uh, this is not the Lazarus who was the uh, brother of Mary and Martha, this was another man named Lazarus. And he died. And he went to Abraham's bosom or paradise. And Jesus said after that, that the rich man died and he went to a place called Torments. And in between the scripture says there was a great gulf fixed or an impassable barrier between Abraham's bosom and Torments. And as the rich man is in torments, he is allowed by God to look across and see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he said to him, take your finger and dip it in the cool water and put it on my tongue. Now, he couldn't say that if there weren't some sort of interim body where Lazarus had a finger and he had a tongue. So, that indi- it also indicates that he is burning, that there is incredible heat there. So... All of that indicates that there is an interim body between our physical death and our resurrection body. There's a torment, there's another compartment on that side called Tartarus. It doesn't show up very well. I'm trying some new techniques here. Tartarus is mentioned in 2 Peter 2 4 as the place where a certain number of fallen angels are confined in chains. Of darkness. The Old Testament believers inhabit paradise. Unbelievers from all dispensations go to torments. And Tartarus is for the demons, that is, the fallen angels of Genesis 6, the ones who did not keep their first estate, the ones who uh, they were called the sons of God who came and took the daughters of, men, uh, daughters of men for their wives and tried to destroy the genetic purity of the human race that these were confined until the tribulation and chains of darkness in Tartarus. Second Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, that is Hades, and committed them to pits of darkness, uh, literally chains of darkness in the Greek, reserved for judgment. So this is not talking about the demons that are still active on the earth. There are two categories of fallen angels, and that is those that are incarcerated in Tartarus, and those that are still active. And those are the demons of today. So we have two two sections of Sheol or Hades, Abraham's bosom, and then a place of torments for unbelievers and Tartarus for the demons who are in chains of darkness. And at the cross, the third uh, Abraham's bosom or paradise was taken after the cross to heaven. According to 2 Corinthians 12:1 through 4, paradise was taken to heaven. So when Jesus died on the cross, after he had paid the penalty for sin, he went to uh, Hades. That's why it says that in the uh, Nicene Creed that he descended into Hades. It doesn't mean that he endured any punishment down there. It is not this idea of the born-again Jesus movement, which is part of the health and wealth gospel, that is. Her- heresy being taught on uh, in many television evangelists and uh, Christian programs today that's just absurd which reduces Jesus to really a not it's just a modern version of an ancient Gnostic gospel but Jesus goes down to announce to the believers that salvation has been secured and the way is now open for you to go to heaven and he takes paradise to heaven. He then announces to the unbelievers from the Old Testament that their judgment is secured and he announces to the demons that their judgment is secured. So, it is a victorious proclamation that he makes to those in uh, Hades and from that point on, there is no more Abraham's bosom in Hades. There are simply torments and Tartarus. Now, after the conclusion of that, where he announces to the thief that he will indeed be in paradise with him that day, Luke tells us that it was about the sixth hour. And then we have the third saying of Jesus Between the, about that time, Therefore the soldiers did these things. But there was standing by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, whom we know, from a parallel passage is named Salome Salome's husband is uh, Zebedee the father of John and James called the sons of thunder so that tells us that John and James are first cousins of Jesus on his mother's side also we know that she had uh, another cousin Elizabeth who gave birth to John the Baptist, it is a family affair. I just, I didn't know, don't know if you ever noticed that before, but many of the disciples were also related in some way to Jesus. Not all of them, but several of them were, and so that made it a somewhat intimate little family affair. But Jesus demonstrates here that even in the midst of all of his pain, he is fulfilling his responsibility towards his mother. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is how the Apostle John refers to himself, uh, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman. He does not ever call his mother, mother. See, in his omniscience, he knew that people would screw that up in the church age and want to worship Mary. And that there was a great debate in the early part of the church over whether to call Mary the mother of God, Theotokos. Or the Mother of Christ, uh, Christotakas, and there was an enormous debate over that because they failed to understand that she is not the Mother of God or the Mother of Christ. She is the Mother of the humanity of Jesus Christ. She is the vehicle through whom He was incarnate as true humanity. So He just refers to her as woman, that there to try to uh, cut off and show that there's no need for a mother cult in Christianity as there is in almost every other pagan religion. That goes all the way back to ancient Babylon where you have the worship of of, uh, uh, the uh, various goddesses who would give birth to a son and then the son would disappear for half the year during the uh, fall over the winter period and then that son would come back to life in the spring. The Tammuz cult was part of that. Very ancient attempt by Satan to try to counterfeit uh, the gospel. So Jesus just refers to her as woman and he is cognizant of his responsibility as a son to honor his father and mother. Joseph is dead by this time, so someone needs to take care of Mary in her old age. So he gives her to John to take care of, and church traditions suggest that that Mary lived in John's house for many, many years. John lived to be about 90, and uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem, he went to Ephesus as a pastor, And the tradition is that Mary went there with him as a quite elderly woman by that time and that she died and is buried in Ephesus. But Jesus is emphasizing here that despite his suffering, all the physical torment, he maintains a focus on his responsibilities under the Mosaic law. Luke tells us, it was now about the sixth hour. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Between 12 noon, according to the a Jewish calendar, Jewish way of reckoning, where the first hour is at six in the morning, the sixth hour would be noon, the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. in our way of reckoning, that during that time darkness fell over the whole land. This is the time when Jesus is paying the penalty for our sins. The sun was completely obscured. No one was to be able to look upon the features of our Lord Jesus Christ during the time that he was paying the penalty for our sins. The point of the Scripture is that the physical agony the Lord went through during those three hours was, um, prior to that was nothing compared to the agony He went through spiritually when He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And this is when we come to the fourth saying of Jesus on the cross, Mark fifteen thirty-four, And at the ninth hour, at the conclusion of this period, when it is at its most intense, and Jesus has been judicially separated from the Father, See, earlier I said this is the difficult thing for us to understand. How is it that the eternal second person of the Trinity, the one who is one with God, how can he be separated from the Father? It is a judicial separation, not a separation of essence or a separation of being. But it is a judicial separation during that time because the perfect righteousness of God could no longer have fellowship with Jesus Christ because he was being made sin. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And this is a quotation from Psalm 22.1, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. This is the uh, Aramaic rendering of Psalm 22.1. And it is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the interesting thing is that the word you here, in this phrase, why have you forsaken me?, is in the original Hebrew of Second, uh, I mean, of Psalm 22, is a second person masculine singular, which means that he is only speaking to God the Father. He is not speaking to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit still indwells him and fills him and sustains him on the cross during all of his agony. But it is God the Father who is the supreme judge of all creation who is judicially separated from him at this point, and, and there is this separation, and how that works and how that functions as Jesus Christ in his humanity carries the sin of the world is beyond our understanding. Remember, it is Jesus in his humanity that bears our sin because only a man could pay the penalty for sin but it is paid for through spiritual death, which is judicial separation from God. It is not Jesus' physical death that saves us. It is not the physical blood of Christ, and we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. It is not the physical blood of Christ, the hemoglobin, the plasma, the red and white corpuscles. That does not save us. It is His spiritual separation from God the Father that pays the penalty for our sin. And this is what takes place between 12 noon and 3 p.m. Matthew records this way. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. See, they did not know their Old Testament. They did not understand the allusion to Psalm 22. They thought, He's not calling out for God. He's calling for Elijah. And at that time, at the end of those three hours, the Roman soldiers decide to offer him something because he said that he thirsted. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So he put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, brought it up to his mouth. But the rest of them were saying, let us see whether Elijah will come, down and, come and take him down. And this is the... Um, or the fifth saying of Jesus. After this, that is after the three hours when he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, Jesus, and then we have an anarthrous uh, present participle of Gnosko. And an anarthrous participle is adverbial, and this would be an adverbial participle of cause. After this, because Jesus knew that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Now, the important thing to notice here is this word translated, "things had all things had already been accomplished, is the Greek word tetelestai, which is the aorist active infinitive of uh, teleao, which means to bring to completion. It means paid in full. If you went to a restaurant in Greece at that time, after you paid the bill, they would write tetelestai on the bottom of the bill paid in full nothing more can be done so before Jesus dies physically before he even comes to the statement of it is finished the scripture makes it clear in John nineteen twenty-eight that Jesus knew that because it was completed already he said I thirst in order to fulfill Old Testament prophecy so this shows us that in the chronology of the cross that at 3 p.m. when Jesus said, I am thirsty, he knew that he had already finished paying the penalty for sin. It was accomplished. It was not his physical death, therefore, that accomplished it. It was accomplished before he died physically. And Luke adds at that point, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when we put this together, we see that the the tearing of the temple veil in two is the opening of the way, the access, the entrance into the Holy of Holies so that because Christ had now paid the penalty, that that access was open. There was nothing to hinder man from access directly to God. And this occurred before he died physically. The veil of the temple was torn in two. So it is not, therefore, the physical death of Christ on the cross that pays the penalty for our sins, but His spiritual death on the cross. The purpose for the physical suffering and physical death, as I pointed out earlier, was different from the paying of the judicial penalty for our sins. And then we come to the sixth saying of Jesus Christ on the cross in John 19.30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, after he drank, he said, It is finished. He announces it. He screams it out. It's finished. Tetelestai. Paid in full. Nothing more can be added. That means that you cannot accept Christ as Savior and add to it by being sincere. Add to it by being good. Add to it by joining a church. Add to it by being a member of a church or or any other human activity. Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full. There is nothing more to it. All we have to do is accept it freely because the work has been completed on the cross. But the problem with modern man is, or with fallen man is, that man thinks that he ought to do something to show God that he's a little bit worthy. And as soon as we try to add something to grace, we destroy grace. Grace is a free gift. It's not based at all on who we are or what we do. It's not based on our attitude. It's only based on one thing, and that is the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid for everything in full. All we have to do is accept it as a free gift. But as soon as we try to add anything to it, to impress God, to demonstrate our worthiness or any other factor, we destroy the gift. Jesus Christ announced it is finished, and then he bowed his head, and John says he gave up his spirit. He voluntarily departed his physical body. He did not die simply as a result of the crucifixion. In fact, normally someone who was crucified would last two or three days, and when the Roman soldiers were to come to break his legs, they didn't, because he was already dead, and they were astounded that, they, that he had died already. So it shows that once he completed the penalty for sin, there was no longer any reason for the suffering to continue, so he gave up his spirit, Numa, his human And then we have the seventh saying of Christ on the cross. Jesus crying out with a loud voice. This is his final statement. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So his physical body goes to the grave. His soul goes to uh, Hades where he announces victory over sin and takes, as Paul writes in Ephesians, sets the captive free and paradise is taken to heaven And he announces judgment on the fallen angels and on unbelievers who are in uh, torments and in Tartarus. And then his human spirit goes to be with God the Father seated at the right hand. Or or goes to heaven temporarily until they are all three united at the resurrection. The physical body, the human spirit, and human soul are reunited together at the um, resurrection three days later. So once he prayed, Father, notice he goes back to the intimate term, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At this point he breathes his last and he dies physically. And then it is at that point that his that the guards discover that he has indeed died and they do not break his legs, and he that fulfills prophecy that he would not have any bone broken according to Isaiah 53 so there are about 15 old testament prophecies that are all fulfilled specifically by Jesus Christ during this time period from 9 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon and the chances of that happening are are much greater than you're ever winning any lottery it's almost impossible mathematically for Uh, 20 of those prophecies related to Christ to have been fulfilled. And we know from Scripture that over 200 Old Testament prophecies were literally fulfilled by Jesus Christ during the incarnation. And it is mathematically impossible for anyone for that to ever happen in human history by chance. It must happen solely and exclusively by God's design. Now, what we have seen from this study so far is that it is Jesus Christ who pays the penalty for our sin. It is not up to us. It is not up to what we do. It's not up to our attitude or any other human factor. It is totally up to Jesus Christ who pays the penalty in full. So the issue for you then is what are you going to do about Jesus Christ? The issue is not praying any set prayer in order to get into heaven. Scripture doesn't say pray to God and you will be saved. It isn't a matter of inviting Jesus into your heart. That's a distortion of Romans three twenty and 21, where uh, Jesus is talking to the... ...and com- says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It is a factor of fellowship... An issue of fellowship, not of salvation. The previous verse says that God loves the church at Laodicea and uses the word phileo, and only uh, believers are the object of God's phileo love. So we know that he is talking to believers, and therefore it is not an issue of salvation. You do not ever make the mistake when you're witnessing to somebody to say that you need to invite Jesus into your heart, or invite Jesus into your life. Find one place in the Scripture where the Gospel is ever presented like that. That's a distortion. The Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. Never does it say, Invite Jesus into your life. Invite Jesus into your heart. Pray to receive Jesus. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is believe, and you can do that right now, right where you sit. You don't have to do anything else, but simply... Believe or trust Christ alone for your salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you so much for the salvation that we do have in Jesus Christ and that this was just a perfect payment for our sin, that He who knew no sin was made sin for us. It is our prayer that if there is anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make that certain right now. All you have to do right where you sit is accept that free gift to put your faith and trust in Christ alone. For your eternal salvation. For the rest of us, Father, we need to be reminded of the the greatness and the magnificence of our salvation, of everything that Christ did for us, because that is our motivation. It stimulates us on the basis of your grace to respond in gratitude and realize that, that with such a great salvation, we must push on to spiritual maturity for that is why we were saved. That we might glorify you in the angelic conflict and that we might praise you with our lives as a physical offering to you for what you have done for us. That does not bring to us any merit. It is simply an expression of our gratitude for all that you have done for us in grace. We pray this now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.